God, uh, we thank you for uh, the scriptures, for the very words that you inspired um, Matthew to write. Um, ask God that you would help us to see what you're trying to get across to us as we uh, try to break down uh, this passage. And pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us and uh, speak to us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be wrapping up chapter 6 tonight, starting in verse 19. Someone's excited that we're wrapping stuff up. (laughs) Sorry, I'm so bad. Um, So we're going to be we're going to be looking at dealing with uh, anxiety, dealing with money, and it's actually a pretty timely issue. Um, I'm going to look at something that um, some of us may be struggling with quite a bit uh, nowadays, and um, many of us are held captive to money problems or anxiety problems. So Jesus ties these issues of money and anxiety together in this passage. And after Jesus addresses the desire to gain the approval of others by doing commendable actions like praying and fasting, uh, philanthropy that he did in the earlier parts of chapter six, he then addresses the desire to secure ourselves through material wealth, which is what we'll be covering today or tonight, and to secure our well-being through accumulating material goods. Then Jesus addresses in more detail what causes our anxiety. And it's not money itself. Um, Jesus' words may feel a little uncomfortable to us, but, but they are offering us a hope that we need in dealing with worry. That this is more than just a money problem. That this is, this is a heart problem behind all of this. And our value system of wealth dominates our thinking when we think of, of the so-called good life, right? And it's really a difficult thing to escape in the United States. We're, we're just bombarded with materialism and fulfilling the American dream, the uh, owning of the house with the white picket fence and a swing and all that kind of stuff. And we're consumed with living a good life that, that is uh, making available to us everything that our heart wants, everything that our heart desires. And um, it's not helped by our society. But Jesus turns the tables and and he addresses this very prominent problem many of us have to uh, secure ourselves through material wealth. And if we're not careful with how we deal with this particular issue, it's going to choke out the life of the kingdom within us. So let's start in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. At the heart of Jesus' teaching is what we treasure. And what is a treasure? A treasure is a a thing we try to keep because of the value that we place on it, right? It it might be totally worthless to somebody else, but to us, it, it really has value to it. And we, as people, reveal what our treasures are by by what we try to protect. And what is one of the most degrading things that you can do to another person? It's depriving them of a, of a treasure, right? Look at the homeless or, or the displaced and observe how they go to great lengths to preserve their treasures, even though someone else would deem those treasures as totally worthless. And remember that movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? Tom Hanks plays a character named Chuck. You guys remember a character by the name of Mr. Wilson? <laughs> Mr. Wilson was a volleyball but he was Chuck's only friend on the island, right? And he treasured that volleyball. He, he named it. He gave him hair. Um, he gave him a face. 
And everyone has treasures. It's a very normal thing. We need them. And it's, it's part of uh, being human. And it starts at a really young age, right? My sister, for example, grew up with a blanket all her life. Since the day she was born, she had this blanket. It's actually quite nasty now. <laughs> but imagine a 30-year-old blanket that was used every day. That's, she's used it over 11,000 days straight. It's, it's, there's not been a day she hasn't, right? She'll throw it in the wash and take it out, but it's available very same day. There's actually very little left of it. It, it was a full-on blanket, but now it's like this thread of a blanket. It's like just like this big mini blanket. And it's just um, this shred. But you know what? That, that's her treasure. She treasures that thing. It's been with her on every business trip that she's been on. It went with her on her honeymoon. Um, it went with her to the labor and delivery room. It's always been with her, right? So treasures are part of what gives us dignity as people, as persons. And it's really important to respect the treasures of others. And parents are, are guilty of this. We often think that some child's beat up toy or, or something that they're, they're valuing that we, we think, well, that's just junk. Why are you keeping that? But it's a treasure to that child, right? And if we don't respect that treasure, we risk damaging that child's spirit. But funny thing about treasures are that they're not just merely physical objects. There are things about our treasures that are more than just the surface level, that are more than skin deep, that reveal something more about our spirit, our heart. And for Chuck and Mr. Wilson, it wasn't because he really liked volleyballs that he made Mr. Wilson Mr. Wilson. He was extremely lonely, right? And he, he, this provided him with some form of friendship, with some form of communication. And with my sister, it's not that she's fond of old cotton or something, but there's, there's some form of security in it, right, that the, the blanket offers her. But the thing is that all those physical, material treasures, they're going to go away. They're temporary. And Mr. Wilson was swept out to sea. My sister's blanket is decomposing, albeit very, very slowly, but nevertheless it is. So, so when those items that represent various things to us, whether security or, or whatever it is, what, when they go away, what happens? You're looking back to something else to fill that void, right? So Jesus knows that, so he tells us to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What does that mean? It means we're to direct our actions toward making a difference in the spiritual realm, into something that's everlasting, into something that's more permanent. Invest our lives into what God is doing, and that type of treasure can't be lost because nothing or no one can take that type of treasure away. Well, how is this done? Well, there's, there's four things to keep in mind. First of all, we invest our time and our efforts into a relationship with Jesus. Secondly, we devote ourselves to the good of other people who are, in, who are in our sphere of influence. And thirdly, we care for ourselves. We take care of ourselves individually as people. And then fourthly, we care for God's creation. We, we were made stewards of this earth, right? We care for the things that God has gifted us with. And Jesus tells us in verse 19, Do not lay for, up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus is telling us not to have our treasures in temporal things, in things that fade away and really have no security in them. It's not because he doesn't want us to enjoy or have earthly treasures, but because if they become central to our being, we'll just be disappointed. They disappoint because they don't last. Earthly treasures are, aren't intrinsically bad, but they don't have an ultimate value either. 
And to trust in earthly treasures is to doom yourself to a life of frustration and emptiness because you'll never be satisfied. And in regards to material things, the secret to happiness is not to keep on feeding this insatiable appetite that's never going to be satisfied, but it's to be content. Contentment is the key. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 21 of uh, chapter 6 of Matthew. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we value earthly treasures, we can pretty much determine our fate, which will be anxiety, frustration, worry. And having a life like this doesn't sound so good, does it? And Jesus knows that the result of treasuring human approval, which we covered two weeks ago, and wealth, which we're covering tonight, it leads to this type of life. And instead, we are to store up treasures in heaven by placing our heart, the center of our being, in God. Matthew was written with a Jewish flavor, right? It was directed towards Jews. So, so knowing that, we have to look at how a Jewish audience of the time would have received this word heart. And the heart in Hebrew means more than just emotion. It, it also includes your mind. And in the Old Testament, it, it's often translated as mind. And since our mind includes the emotions as well as the intellect, in, intellect the word heart can be understood by our English word consciousness. Jesus says what we really value is shown to us by what comes to our consciousness most often. So what is your consciousness most preoccupied with? A relationship with a person? Uh, finding a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Money? Something material? A career? A job? And to treasure God means to love Him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Is God what comes up in your consciousness most often or is it something else? And this is what brings us to a healthy life, a wholeness that lacks nothing. This is what gives us wisdom, safety, fulfillment. Imagine living this way, treasuring God to the fullest. How would it affect your choices that you make? Choices in what we purchase, how we spend our leisure time, where we live, how we dress, what we eat. How would it change those things if we organize our life around storing our treasures in heaven? And what we really treasure is what our heart is, right? Or where our heart is. And I remember when I graduated college and, and I started working, I was consumed with, with being rich. I wanted to make it financially and, and have a good life. I wanted the jets. I wanted the yachts. I wanted homes, vacation homes, nice clothes, watches and jewelry, all this stuff, right? I wanted all that stuff. And actually, there was a group of my friends who were just like me, right? So we, we all hung out together. We, we called each other dream builders. And, and we'd get the Rob Report. Are you guys familiar with the Rob Report? Oh, one sinner here. So, <laughs> so we'd, we'd look through the Rob Report, right? And um, we, we see all these material things and just like salivating. Oh, this is so awesome, right? Um, it's a luxury magazine. It has everything in it. Art to wine, like A to W. I couldn't think of like a luxurious thing that was Z. So, um, and, and we'd go out on these adventures that we'd call like dream building sessions. And we'd go to car dealerships, like a Porsche dealership, and we'd test drive Porsches. And um, we'd go to Ferraris and Bentleys and Lamborghinis and stuff like that too, but they run a credit report, so they wouldn't let us test drive. So <laughs> but we could do Porsches. And, and we'd go to different homes, 
all over Southern California, the ones in beaches and things like that, and we'd, we'd look at all this stuff and, and covet all this stuff. And then we'd go to these high fashion places and try on clothes, trying on outrageous designer suits, over $5,000 suits, and like, hey, check me out, right? And going to jewelry stores and trying on these watches that are more than everything that I possess now. And looking at places and all these magazines and stuff that, that I was like, oh, I'd love that jet. That was an awesome jet. Look at that, or that yacht, or whatever. I don't know how much time I wasted just doing that. And it was probably a good five to six years of just a a fanatical behavior like this, right? My mind was preoccupied with this stuff before, like when I was in college, right? It's just normal for a college guy to like this stuff. But it became like an everyday thing for me afterward. And I was convicted about it. Actually, very early on, but it took some time for me to finally get to a place where it was broken. And and I wondered what would happen at at the time, like uh, at the end of this five, six year stint. What would happen if I put all that energy and time into my relationship with God instead of chasing material wealth? What would happen? In fact, many of my friends who were in this group were Christians. We were all Christians. But our priorities were all messed up. By the grace of God, he convicted me of what I was treasuring and thank God for his patience with me. I mean, I was so stubborn. It took so long for for my heart to change and and to be open to listening to what he wanted. But the Holy Spirit kept at me and I started making some right decisions about what I was treasuring. So what's your treasure? And if you don't know, all you have to do is you look at where your heart or your consciousness is thinking, is centered, what you think most about. That's where your treasure is. Verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If our eyes are in good health and working the way they should, they're able to effectively direct our body. They're able to direct us away from harm. They can help us see danger. They can help us follow what's right and what's safe, right? So is a person who's able to see things from a kingdom perspective. With the right way of seeing, we can put things in the proper perspective and evaluate what the true worth of something is. But the opposite is true as well. Having a bad eye or a defective eye, seeing things from a worldly perspective, it clouds things up and it causes wrong decisions to be made. Decisions that can bring about harm or even death because you're not seeing clearly where you're going and you're lost, right? And this is what it means to be a lost soul. You can't see properly. You're lost. And Jesus is not talking about a literal eyesight. He's talking about a spiritual eyesight or a spiritual sight. And eyes in the Old Testament are are metaphors for perceptiveness. And we have a little bit of this in our English language when we when we're having a discussion with somebody and they're sharing with us and they and they tell us something that makes sense to us. And then we say, oh, I see Right. And it's not that you literally see the idea like, oh, look, it's out of the cloud out of his head. You understand. Right. You have a perception of what that person's trying to see. So if one sees, then one perceives and then one understands. And if one has good eyes that can see, then one can perceive the truth. And if we have eyes that can't see that, we don't have the ability to see the truth. And in Matthew, chapter 20, verse 15, Jesus says, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? In other words, evil takes away proper perspective. It takes away proper understanding. 
So here one's ability to see truth can be blinded by having the wrong treasures. If you choose in faith to value eternal treasures, then you'll see life differently. Right? And for those of you who question whether there's a heaven, a hell, a God, I can see where your reservations are um, to treasure eternal things because you can't count it, you can't touch it, and you can't physically see eternal rewards. I understand your question. But if you don't risk seeing things through a spiritual lens with an eternal perspective, there's no way for you to have a right way of looking at things because there's an element of faith there, right? And last week we talked about how God simultaneously acts, right? How He does things as we concurrently act in faith. If you choose in faith to value eternal treasures, you will be able to see things from God's perspective. And that's part of what you have to do in having faith is that accept that and that as you do that, He'll he'll allow you to see through His lenses, through His eternal perspective, what to value, what to treasure. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So we've established that we all have treasures. You wouldn't be a human if you didn't. And so we, we, so we do what we, we can to serve and protect those treasures, but we can't serve two conflicting treasures at the same time. See, our hearts can't worship God and money at the same time. We can't treasure the kingdom and the world at the same time because they conflict with one another. They rival one another. And the only way we are able to serve the kingdom and the world at the same time is if you put the kingdom first. What's the first commandment? Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And you can have materials. You can use materials. You can value them even. But they can't come first. They can't come before God. And it's not because God has some inferiority complex, right? It's because He knows what it will do to you if you don't put Him first. You'll destroy yourself. You'll destroy yourself by having money as your idol and and a rival God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But if you can't see properly, you won't be able to even know you can't serve both. You can't see that. And in the next several verses, 25 through 34, the word worry in some of your translations say anxiety. It's found five times in in this short amount of verses. And the next verses are all about handling anxiety, handling worry or apprehension concerning our daily needs. Jesus doesn't want us to be naive or irresponsible, but free in how we live. And he addresses anxiety and tells us not to worry about this life as to how we're going to eat, drink or be clothed. Verse 25, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Do not worry about your life. How in the world is that possible? How can you not worry about your life? You know, it's only possible after we've come through the Sermon on the Mount sequence of developing a kingdom heart. What we started... Months ago, right? In chapter 5. And I want you to keep in mind these steps and how they build upon each other, right? When we went all the way back when we started with the Beatitudes. I'd like you to notice how each step makes the following step more doable, more logical, more natural. And how it makes it more likely that you're going to follow the steps after one another. And notice how it leads to being able to be free of worry. So step 1, going all the way back to the Beatitudes, chapter 5. 
It begins by recognizing that our well-being and our blessedness are available from God. Right? The very beginning of chapter 5. Then it moves on into verses 21 through 42. Step 2. Jesus is telling us to lay aside anger, to lay aside contempt, to lay aside obsessive desires, to show people tenderness, to show them love towards them. Right? And then step 3. He moves on to verse uh, 43 through 48. How we are to love and to help those who hurt us and hate us, to remain vulnerable, to show them love. Step four, going into chapter six now, first part of chapter six. We give up the need to make ourselves look good, feel good through a good reputation and through wealth. And then lastly, step five, what we're covering tonight. We stop worrying about possessions and money because we followed those previous four steps. And we see that the beauty of the soul that God has made within us is sufficient. And it all begins with God first. Jesus knows that whatever we will have to do to impress others to be financially secure or fulfill our desires will ultimately lead you against God's desires. And it will ultimately lead you from treasuring heaven. And when we treasure heaven, it's not the destination that we treasure, right? Do you know that the, the treasure God has for us, they're available to us right now. And some of us treasure being in heaven, but heaven is not a destination. Did you know that? Heaven is being wherever Jesus is. Heaven without Jesus is not heaven. It's called hell, right? And, and if we believe we are in the presence of Jesus now, which I believe we are, then aren't we in some sense in heaven And the who in heaven makes it heaven, not the destination after we die. Right? Eternity is forever, right? So if it is, isn't right now part of forever? So why why are some of us living like we're not in His presence? That we have to wait for something to happen to us, like die. We have to occupy the kingdom right now. We can do amazing things in Jesus' name right now, right? And Jesus asks a rhetorical question I find really interesting at the end of verse 25. He asks, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I think he's trying to make this very elementary for us. He's making this very basic for us and telling us something that's going to carry into verse 26 with birds. But I think he's saying that animals, animals are merely concerned with physical needs, not humans, animals, right? We're more than just animals. Our life is more than just survival. It's just more than just seeking something to eat or something to wear or something. And we have eternal matters to be concerned about in our lives. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And this reminds me of what we went over last week. Give us this day our daily bread. Remember that story about manna? How it had to be gathered every day except for Saturday. You couldn't store it. Jesus is using the example in birds in that they don't store their food. But the funny thing about birds is that they don't just sit around in their cozy nest, right, waiting for food to come to them, right? They actually work really hard to find food. And they have to. They have to do it constantly because of this high metabolism that birds have, right? And it's the same for us. Some of us don't have that high of a metabolism, but... Yeah, me. So some people interpret this passage as saying that they can just sit back, right? And let, let God just provide everything for them. It's not so. We are to work. 
We're not supposed to worry about food, water, and clothing, but this isn't a license to be lazy. We are to work for our food, just like birds, but we don't have to worry about it. And you know, in these hard economic times, some of us may be out of a job, but you are to work. You don't have to worry about your provision, but you have to work. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, Paul tells Timothy, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I know of people out there who are not providing for their families. Shame on you. This is a minimum required of you as a Christian to provide for your household. And if you don't do that, you're worse than an unbeliever. Look at Jesus, even while he's dying on the cross. He makes sure that his mom's taken care of and he gives John charge over her, right? Even while he's dying. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And this is something that has affected me personally. And I, told you, I shared with you a story about my dad last week. And this is something that I even brought to his attention at that time, albeit in a really bad negative heart towards him. Um, but this is something that really affected me as a child and really affected me as a teenager and growing up. And I, I just couldn't understand that. God has given you charge to provide for your household. And even if you don't have a family, you need to work. Bills don't pay for themselves. You need to work for your own testimony. You need to be responsible in your faith. There's a difference between a godly sense of responsibility and an ungodly, untrusting worry. And sitting on your butt and worrying about how to pay this bill or that bill isn't going to do you any good. You have to get off your butt and look for a job. And if you're having a problem finding work, come to my office or email me or, or call me. Just stop doing nothing. All right. And we'll, we'll try to help you. We'll, we'll look at Craigslist and see what jobs are out there. We'll try to help you with a resume. We'll try to look for other jobs or other resources that we can have. But you got to work. And whether you're a Christian or not, you still have to eat and clothe yourself. Whether you're a spiritual person or not, you have to have a you, you have a physical body that needs to be fed, that needs to be clothed. Right. And if our bodies don't get properly fed or properly clothed, we die. It's natural to be concerned about these things and to have anxiety about our basic daily needs. And Jesus knows that anxiety is a real part of dealing with reality of meeting our daily needs. So when he challenges us to be free of the love of money, he knows that what he's telling us could actually make us more open to anxiety because it takes money to survive. So Jesus addresses the issue of anxiety further. Verse 27, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Have you guys heard of this um, cosmetic surgery called leg le lengthening? It's crazy. They cut off your tibias, the shin bones, and then they uh, put these two these uh, things, rods and stuff, and then slowly they stretch them out, and then the bone grows over each other. It's just a bunch of shenanigans. So, um, and it takes months to do this, and it really only helps you grow like two or three inches. So I don't understand why people do it, but anyway, they do it. Jesus addressed treasuring food, right? And then he moves on to how we look. Jesus knows that, that many of us treasure physical appearance, and one of the main appearances we find attractive is someone's height, right? How tall they are. It was the same back then, not that much different nowadays. And some of us may feel too short, others may feel too tall, but how does worrying about it make you change at all, right? Your beauty as a person does not depend on your height. 
In fact, the things people do make themselves appear that make themselves appear more attractive actually can harm them. Let's keep going on this outward attractiveness idea. Verse 28. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. This is talking about how we dress or accessorize ourselves to make us look more attractive. But no, no matter how smashing you look on the outside, if you're ugly on the inside, you're ugly. Right? You're ugly. True beauty lies in your soul. And you know when my wife is most beautiful to me? When she's pregnant. That's when she's most beautiful me, beautiful to me. Knowing how much care she puts into herself to nurture our, our child. Um, knowing that the heart behind what she eats and why she reads what she reads and why she exercises and how she takes care of herself. Knowing all that stuff and, and creating a child together because of our love for one another. That's when she's most beautiful to me. It's not when she fancies up herself with all this stuff and, and spends all of our money on clothing and like... <laughs> No, that actually makes her very unattractive to me. Or, or like, pays for cosmetic surgery or something like that, or whatever. Like, and some of you are thinking, like, that's gross. Like, they're so big and round, and, like, people orbit around them. They're so big. And, and even pregnant women say this. I'm so fat. I'm so big. Not me. I think my wife's the most beautiful at that time. And I can't wait till she's pregnant again. And, and you know who else I think is really beautiful? The elderly. I love the elderly. And, I mean, you can ask my wife about how I just kind of sit around and observe them and admire them, right? And she thinks it's weird. You might too. But I I actually think that they're beautiful. Um, Some of them. Some of them are really crabby and they're just not beautiful at all. But (laughs) some of them are really sweet. And it's what's inside of them that makes them beautiful, right? And and some of them that are so sweet, that have so much wisdom, that, that you can see inside that they've been married 60 years, and that, that's a beautiful thing. And then you see that, and I, I love it. And something for us to think about with lilies is they don't clothe themselves. And I don't think that God is saying that you shouldn't clothe yourself, but that it's pointing us to what true beauty is. And that true beauty is created by Him. He makes things beautiful, not us. We can try as hard as we can to make ourselves look beautiful, but it's God that makes us beautiful. Verse 29, And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Compare all these glamorous people in magazines and movies and red carpet events and compare them to a lily that God created. There's no comparison if we're just looking at exteriors, right? What makes that person more beautiful is on the inside, but if you're just creating, or if you're just solely comparing the exteriors like a lily and, and the beauty and the color and stuff like that, man cannot duplicate that. What makes you more beautiful than the lilies is what's inside of you. Verse 30, Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? O you of little faith. Are we lacking faith in God that we have eternal value? That we are more beautiful than what others say we are? Our our value is so much greater than the birds He provides food for and drink for and the lilies that are so beautifully clothed? Therefore, do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? And this is a beautiful thing here. You and I are invited by God to know a freedom from worry, a freedom from anxiety that comes from concerning ourselves with material things. He's telling us, don't worry. 
He's inviting us into that worry-free zone, right? Verse 32, For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So when he says Gentiles, he's speaking of those who are unaware of God, who are blind of God, who can't see God, who don't have that perception, the perceptiveness, and are those who are preoccupied with securing themselves with material goods and worry about what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, what they're going to wear. And there's no peace like this. Seeking after those things brings about a life of anxiety, of, of discontent, because you're never satisfied. It brings about anger, resentment, envy, covetousness, because you're always wanting more. There's always a new season, right? We moved from bell-bottoms to, I don't know, fashion, but now we're going back to bell-bottoms, I think. But they always change, right? The seasons always change. You always have to keep up with fashion things. You always have to keep up with technology. Cars always get better. Houses always get nicer. You are never satisfied. It brings about depression. It brings about insecurity because you're looking to appease those who can't be pleased. But those of us who understand Jesus know that God has made a provision for us. That we don't have to live in such a disharmony because God is who we seek. And we, we acknowledge that He's keenly aware of what we need. And we have a confidence in God to provide for those needs. And yes, we work, but we don't worry about the things of the world. We, we consume ourselves with the things of God's kingdom. And so we move on to this next verse, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. What does seek first the kingdom of God mean? It means to place a top priority on identifying and involving yourself in what God is doing and in the kind of rightness He has and stands for. And when we place our confidence in Jesus by seeking first the kingdom of God, we'll find that all of our needs are provided for. We'll have everything we need. And, and that is what being well off really means. We, we seek to be well off. That's what it is. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, right? What is His righteousness? It's a reference to God's character. His divine love that, that's only made available to us, to those of us who have a relationship with Jesus. So ask yourself, if you are seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness first, ask yourself if your physical well-being is worthy enough to devote your entire life to. And if you think that it is, then whatever you're pursuing, that's your God. If you're pursuing that wealth, that's your God. And you can be assured that your life is going to be cursed with worry. You can rest assured to live your life like an animal, concerned mostly with meeting your physical needs and not addressing your spiritual needs. And you know that you'll be physically dead much longer than you'll be physically alive, don't you? Did you know that? I hope so. And you know that you'll be forever alive spiritually? Do you know that you don't die? You don't die spiritually. You're everlasting from your creation here on out. You never die spiritually. So once you die physically, you go spiritually, and then you're either in heaven or hell. And it's not necessarily a destination. It's the person, Jesus, right? If you are in the presence of Jesus, you're in heaven. If you're in the absence of Jesus, you're in hell. What will you invest your life towards? Physical things, spiritual things. If you're investing into physical, you know where you're going to end up spiritually. Verse 33 ends with, And all these things shall be added to you. 
If you don't think that your physical well-being is worthy to live your life for, you can enjoy all these things. Jesus promises us heavenly treasures, resting in knowing our divine provisions and fulfillment in what we have, in, in that we have purpose serving Him and having fellowship with Him. And this is a choice for us to make. And we have the opportunity to reinforce the decision to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness or deny that decision every day. Just like picking up manna for the ancient Israelites, we have a daily choice to make. Earlier, Dave shared a verse about picking up your cross daily. Verse 34, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What are we not to focus on in verse 34? Don't focus on the things that you can't control. Namely, tomorrow. If you want to focus on something, focus on today and the things we can act upon today. And when we have a proper perspective of where our treasures lie, we're able to proceed with life without anxiety, without worry. We'll be able to let go of trusting in things like human approval, material wealth, things that will eventually fail us. They might work temporarily, but eventually they fail us. God never fails. Put your trust in God. And how do you do that? Well, first... We go back to that thing on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, right? First, you have to recognize that your well-being and your blessedness are available only through God. Only He can bless you. And that no matter who you are or what you've done, He loves you. And you start there. Last week we started with the, the Lord, or we studied the Lord's Prayer. It started with our Father. You have to acknowledge that, that He's your dad, that He'll provide for you. That He loves you. And He's trustworthy of that devotion. Let's end with Proverbs 19, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Let's pray. God, thank You for uh, pointing us to what is eternal. To showing us what is temporary. And that if our treasures are lying there, how eventually those things go away. I ask God that you would bring to our minds that as we pray or as we seek your kingdom first, that you would show us the things that are, are really our treasures, where we put most of our consciousness, where we put most of our effort and time. God, I ask that, that you would replace all those things. And for our church that, that we would seek not human approval, that we seek your approval, that we don't seek the wealth of uh, the congregation here, but that we are looking to heavenly treasures. In Jesus' name, amen.